0: True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The park is quiet as the man slowly moves around collecting items for recycling. The coke can and water bottle so thoughtlessly discarded by pedestrians will all add up to a bit of cash for the man when he hands in his full bag at the recycling centre at the end of the day. It can be a dirty job. He often has to wade through the detritus of other people's lives, leftover food, smelly stuff, to find the items he's looking for. Today, though, as he ventures deeper into the park than he's ever been before, what he finds will be more horrific than anything he's ever seen, and it will be another puzzle piece in a terrifying mystery gripping the community. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to Episode 92, The Serial Crimes of Richmond Makwenkwe. This episode is sponsored by Dialabed. If you're listening to this podcast in bed, you should know that the quality of each day is decided the night before. Sleep your way to a new and more vibrant you. Behind every mover and shaker, there is a perfect mattress. And Dialabed has your back with South Africa's widest range of bed brands. Upgrade your bed today by visiting a Dialabed store or shopping online at dialabed.co.za. A huge thank you to Dialabed for supporting True Crime South Africa. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Gloria Parker, Kirsten Karabo, and Ben Kirk for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much, everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. In addition to the shout-out and monthly exclusive episode that Patreons get, I also now upload an ad-free version of every week's episode to Patreon. So if you prefer not to hear the ads, head over to Patreon and sign up for a minimum monthly contribution of just $1, which at the moment is about 16 rand. It's a pretty good deal if you like discounts because who doesn't head over to king online for your health and beauty needs print crowd for all your printing requirements and use the code tcsa10 at checkout for 10% discounts and support the show at the same time and you can get 10% off when you order from wallpaper online by using the code true crime at checkout other forms of support that make a huge difference Include following the show on social media, inviting your friends, family, postman, hairdresser, and parole officer to listen, and leaving reviews on the podcast platform you use. Today's episode focuses on a serial murderer. And of course, it's not the first I've covered on this podcast, considering our country has such a high rate of serial murder. What makes this one a bit different, though, is that we have quite a lot of information from a part of the investigation process we don't often hear about, the forensic pathologist. We know that all murder cases go through an autopsy, but we hardly ever hear about the details discovered in these unless they form part of the court case. In today's case, we have the perspective of two different forensic pathologists to draw upon, Dr. van Staden, who I interviewed on the podcast, performed some of the autopsies in this case. And she spoke about it in her television series, Autopsy. And also, in 2015, Dr. Shakira Holland published a research report entitled Unmasking Serial Murder as part of her master's studies. And in this report... She compares the serial crimes of this offender against some of the general conclusions drawn about serial murderers in an FBI symposium held in 2005. Interestingly, and perhaps ironically, as this symposium was being held, the offender I'll be discussing today was gearing up for his first murder in his series. So let's get into episode 92. The Serial Crimes of Richmond Makwenkwe. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Richmond Musi Makwenkwe.com was born on the 15th of February, 1978. There is very little information available about his childhood, but when his brother would later be interviewed, he provided no indication of any overtly negative experiences in their household. Due to a combination of their rural home and the sad realities of apartheid South Africa for millions of citizens, Richmond was not able to continue his schooling beyond grade two later IQ tests, would prove that this had nothing to do with his level of intelligence, as he tested in the average range. Richmond would claim that his first sexual experience was at the age of 15 or 16, which he later felt was not entirely consensual, and was with a much older woman. He said that after this he developed a fetish around wearing women's underwear, which aroused him sexually, but he could only indulge himself when he was not living with others, which, considering he was often not financially secure, was very seldom. In 1996, when he was 18 years old, Richmond left his home for Cape Town, where he would spend two years working temporary jobs where he could find them. As Dr Shakira Holland states in her study, Richmond's educational and work history lines up with what the data shows about many serial murderers in South Africa. Most will only be casually or temporarily employed, and very often only have a primary school level education. Eventually in 1998, Richmond decided to move to Johannesburg in the hopes of gaining better employment opportunities. There he worked in fast food outlets and took up gardening jobs. His past employers all described him as hard-working and honest. On the love front, Richmond was doing relatively well too. He had two one-year-long relationships in 1999 and 2000, before meeting the woman who would go on to be his long-term girlfriend in 2001. Sheila Zoleka Kula became involved with Richmond, and he moved into her home in Moffat Park in early 2002. Sheila lived in an informal structure in the backyard of a homeowner there, and for the most part, their relationship seemed happy enough. When asked about his sexual tastes with the women he dated, Richmond would later say that he didn't experience anything outside of what he would call normal sex, although he didn't expand on this. Unfortunately, his previous girlfriends could never be tracked down for comments, and Sheila... Well, Sheila would never be able to give her side of the story. The criminal development of serial murderers is always a point of interest, and very often we see them committing petty crimes in their teens and early 20s and graduating up to more serious and violent crimes. With many serial murderers whose crimes end up having some element of a sexual motive, we often see them committing serial rapes first. Corbis Heldenhuis, the so-called Norwood serial rapist and murderer, and Moses Satole, were two examples of this. And although Richmond Marquenque would never be convicted of any rapes prior to his murder series beginning, he would later claim that by the time he moved in with his first long-term girlfriend, he had already committed one rape. He said that he went on to commit another rape in 2004 as well. Although attempts were made to track down these victims, they could never be found. The truth is, though, with the vast majority of rapes in South Africa not being reported, even today when sex crimes in GBV are far more widely discussed than they were in the 90s and early 2000s, it does not surprise me that these victims would not have come forward and could not be identified. And it is very likely... That Richmond was being absolutely honest when he admitted to these two crimes, and that these were parts of the build up of what was to come. In 2005, Richmond was arrested on a housebreaking charge. He was eventually found not guilty due to lack of evidence, but while he was incarcerated and awaiting trial, his girlfriend, Sheila, decided she no longer wanted to be with him. When Richmond was released, He returned to the home he'd shared with Sheila, to be told he was no longer welcome there. When he asked for the items that belonged to him that he'd left there, Sheila told him that she'd had no space to keep the items indefinitely, so she'd given them away. Richmond described being enraged by this, and after a heated argument, he left, and would eventually find new lodgings just down the road. Both Sheila's home and the new dwelling that Richmond moved into in Moffat Park were in a road that edged a natural park, also called Moffat Park. In 1936, architect Johann Abraham Moffat, who owned the piece of land, donated it to the city of Johannesburg for use as a park area for the surrounding families. The park was often used as a thoroughfare for pedestrians moving through the area its expanse made it a great place for people to indulge in natural surroundings and have some privacy for whatever they might want to do. In the days after Richmond's release from prison, his fury toward Sheila continued to simmer within him, and eventually, in late 2005, it boiled over. In December 2005, inspector michael grobeler of the SAPS dog unit was searching moffat park with his tracking dog for a missing person within minutes of starting the search the canine officer had clearly picked up a scent but what he led grobeler to was not what the man had expected the missing person the team had been seeking had gone missing just days before but under a tree A significant distance into the park, the dog led his handler to a shallow grave, which contained the severely decomposed remains of a woman. The body, wrapped in a grey blanket, was only partially covered in soil. Murderers often underestimate how difficult it actually is to dig a hole deep enough to bury an entire body, and not leave any sign of the burial behind. This killer had not even gone half a metre deep before giving up, rolling the body in the blanket and heaping soil over it. In the episode of Autopsy about this case, Dr. Stalfan Starden recalls being a very newly qualified forensic pathologist when she was called out to attend the scene. The victim was dressed only in a dark blue t-shirt and a grey vest. Her hands were bound in front of her body with a piece of material, and then that material was tied to her thigh with a piece of wire. Estimating how long the body had been there was always going to be difficult, but Dr. van Staden noticed that skin slippage was already occurring on areas of the body, as well as significant bloating and discoloration of the body. There was no immediate way to identify the victim. But thankfully, although skin slippage had started to occur in other places of the body, the victim's hands were not yet as badly affected, so Dr. van Staden was able to take fingerprints. These fingerprints would then go on to be compared first to any open missing persons cases, which may fit the victim profile, and if that failed to produce any leads, They would then be sent to home affairs in an attempt to compare them to fingerprints gleaned from identity documents applications. The victim profile was basic. The body was that of a black female, aged approximately in her 30s. In life, she would have weighed about 55 kilograms, and she was 1.6 metres tall. Dr. van Staden noticed a hematoma, or collection of blood, in the occipital area of the skull, which is at the back of the head. This could have indicated that the victim was struck from behind at some point. This, however, was not severe enough to have been the cause of death, and due to the decomposition of the body, Dr. van Staden was unable to conclusively say what the cause of death may have been. It was noted that the victim was naked from the waist down but again due to the long exposure to the elements and the body's decomposed state a sexual assault could not be ruled in or out and although swabs were taken of the genital area no identifiable dna could be located this would be the first victim of a murder series that dr van staden would work on although of course She had no idea at the time that this was not just a one-off murder. It would take another three months for a second victim to be found in Moffat Park. On the 26th of March 2006, a man collecting cans for recycling stumbled upon a shallow grave containing a body. The man had been drawn to the spot by a pile of rubble he'd seen, which he thought may contain some valuable items. Instead, as he was picking through it, he realised that the rubble had been purposefully placed there to conceal the body. Of this concealing or partial burying of bodies, Lieutenant Colonel Elmery Myberg of the Investigative Psychology Unit says it's actually quite rare for offenders to attempt to bury or cover their victims. Most commonly, bodies will be left out in the open, but when this attempt at concealment does occur, book says it can be helpful to investigators in two ways. Firstly, it can help to establish a pattern. If an offender does this once, they will likely do it again, and this can be used as similar fact evidence to link scenes together. The other way it's helpful is in the profiling process, because the attempt at concealment indicates what Mayberg refers to as pseudo-remorse. This faux-remorse is often built up when the perpetrator has formed some type of connection with the victim. Mayberg warns, though, that one should not assume that this connection is the same as the type of connection other people may have. It may not necessarily be true that the offender actually knows the victim outside of the offence, but it does indicate that there was possibility of some level of interaction between them while the offence was being carried out, that it made the offender exhibit this pseudo-remorse in concealing the victim's body. When police arrived on the scene of this second victim recovery, they carefully picked through the rubble, not wanting to discard any possible evidence, and eventually unearthed the body of a male victim. The man was laying face down in a shallow grave. He was dressed only in a pair of white boxer shorts, and his hands were tied behind his back with a piece of denim material. Although it would have been far too early to definitively say that this was the work of the same perpetrator, the binding of the hands again provides similar fact evidence, and the way in which this was done, as well as the material used to bind the victims is often very important to profilers in establishing a pattern. At autopsy, a further similarity to the previous victim was established. This victim also had hemorrhaging in the occipital area of the skull, but unlike the previous victim, here the pathologist could conclusively determine a cause of death. Along with the blunt force trauma to the head, there was a fracture to the victim's hyoid bone, which is in the neck, indicating strangulation, and this was concluded to have been the cause of death. Identification of this victim was also not immediately available, and sadly, although police would come to understand how the man had fit into the picture, and even possibly learn his first name, he would never be fully identified. The man was in his 30s, and had weighed approximately 60 kilograms in life he was 1.6 meters tall although it was believed that the victim had been in the grave for some time he was less decomposed than the previous victim and this was because of the position in which he'd been placed when a body is left face up it is far easier for insects to gain access to the body through the cavities in the face and the genitals, if the victim is naked. These insects will speed up the decomposition process slightly and break down tissue. So the fact that this male victim was placed face down in the grave meant that insects took longer to move into the body. Because the victim was naked, except for his boxer shorts, a sexual assault kit was done, It yielded no results, and there did not appear to have been any penetration of the anus. At this point, the words serial killer were not on the lips of many people, at least not publicly. In fact, though, it would later become apparent that police had considered the possibility of a serial offender this early on, but they would not admit to this until several more bodies had been found. Two months after the male victim was discovered, another gruesome find was made in Moffat Park. This time, the victim was in a very advanced state of decomposition, to the point where the body was already partially skeletonized. The body was discovered by a man collecting firewood in the park, and it was clear that the victim had also been burned after her body had been partially buried by a felt fire. That had occurred in the area the month before. The fire had changed the decomposition process and damaged tissue across most of the body, so it was very difficult to tell when the victim had been killed, and again, physical identification was going to be a serious challenge. In this case though, when the victim's body was lifted out of the grave, a vital clue was found nestled under her body a school blazer. The blazer had been protected from the fire by the victim's body and was perfectly preserved. Inside the blazer pocket, Mike von Art, the seasoned detective who had by now been assigned to the case due to his significant experience with serial murder cases, found another clue. It was a single key that looked like it would fit the front door of a house. The autopsy of this victim found that due to the extensive skeletonization of the remains, no conclusive cause of death could be found. The body was believed to be that of a young black female between the ages of 16 and 23 years old. When the victim was found, she was wearing the remains of a white button-up shirt and a white vest, as well as grey pants. The zip on the pants was pulled down, and the button was undone. Van Aert knew that identifying this victim would be far easier than the previous two, and his first port of call was the school to which the blazer found in the grave belonged. The school principal immediately gave Van Aert the name of one of their grade 8 pupils who'd gone missing on her way to school in March that year. Her name was Vanessa sibille With the name... Van Art called on the girl's family, and while he cautioned them that he could not positively say that the remains did belong to Vanessa, there was sadly a very good chance it was her. He did have one more thing he wanted to check though, the key that had been found in the victim's blazer. But when Van Art looked at the lock in the Sabier's front door, he immediately realised that the key wouldn't fit. Then Vanessa's family provided a key piece of information. In the afternoons after school, Vanessa was not in the habit of coming home, as their house was empty until they got back from work. Instead, she went to a friend's house, whose mother was home during the afternoon, so that she didn't have to be alone. They gave the detective the address of the nearby house, and sure enough, the key fit that house's lock. Von Art was now even more certain that the victim in the grave in Morford Park was Vanessa Cibie. Due to the almost complete skeletonization of the body and the lack of any significant tissue on the remains, a DNA identification was going to be difficult. The bones of the body had also been exposed to the heat from the felt fire meaning that it was very likely any DNA obtained from the very expensive process of breaking down bone material to extract DNA would be compromised. There was enough circumstantial evidence pointing toward the victim's identity though to employ the services of a forensic analyst in the biological services of the SAPS this analyst would take a reconstructed version of the victim's skull and compare it to a photograph of Vanessa Sabille. By analysing the similarities in the skull formation and facial features, the analyst was able to determine that the person whose remains had been found in Moffat Park did indeed belong to Vanessa Sabille. The identification of a victim would likely have given investigators hope that by analyzing Vanessa's closest circles they may be able to find her killer and perhaps even link that person to the two other murders but months would pass and no further movement was made in the case and then in September 2006 another body was found. Two men collecting items for recycling in the park found the body of a woman. She was lying face up on the ground, with her face and the top of her torso covered in leaves and rubble. She was wearing a red jersey and black socks, but she was naked from the waist down, and a pair of brown pants were found underneath her body. The woman was estimated to be in her 40s. Her hands were bound behind her back with a piece of plastic. During autopsy, it would be discovered that the hyoid cartilage in the neck was fractured, although the bone itself was still intact. The cause of death was determined to be consistent with pressure having been applied to the victim's neck. A rape kit was performed on the victim, but due to extensive decomposition, it provided only inconclusive results. The victim's hands were in a condition referred to as washerwoman's hands, which is the wrinkling of skin that occurs when a body is exposed to moisture for long periods. As a result, fingerprints were almost impossible to get, and sadly, the identity of this victim would never be determined. As is so often the case in instances of serial murder, a point of escalation is reached in which the offender seems to reduce their cooling-off period between the crimes. This escalation often seems to correlate with increased police activity or media attention to the crimes. Indeed, after Vanessa Sabia's body had been discovered, the residents of the areas surrounding Moffat Park, as well as the media, had started to question whether a serial offender was at work. The police denied it, possibly because they wanted to keep their cards close to their chest, but we know now there was already a task team in place to investigate the series and the investigative psychology unit was also working with the task team unfortunately yet another victim would be found before a breakthrough would be made on the 5th of October 2006 two people walking through Moffat Park came across the body of a female the woman was found lying face down she had a white shirt pulled up and around her neck, and her denim jeans and underwear were pulled down around her ankles. The remains of the woman were significantly decomposed, and parts of her body were already skeletonized. Sadly, this victim, too, would never be identified. Although the task team had no doubt that this was a victim of the same serial offender they were tracking, Two big differences in this crime stood out. The body had not been covered, and the victim's hands were not bound. The autopsy would reveal that the body was that of an adult female, and the cause of death could not be conclusively established due to decomposition, but it was likely that she had been strangled, considering the presence of her shirt around her neck. With a fifth body located, the task team were under considerable pressure to find the killer. Single murders are often solved because the killer cannot keep their crime to themselves and they tell someone what they've done. This, however, is not as frequently the case with serial murderers. But in October 2006, members of the terrified Moffat Park community did come forward with information. A young man had been telling his neighbours and friends a strange tale, one that involved rape and murder, and the people hearing the story were not entirely convinced that he wasn't telling the truth. The information would be fed back to the task team after someone in the neighbourhood mentioned what they'd heard to a police officer they knew. That officer told his superior and the Moffat Park serial killer task team was informed. The man behind the apparent confessions was Richmond Makwenkwe. Police checked the man's background and found that he lived on a road that bordered Moffat Park. They also discovered that he'd previously lived with his girlfriend nearby, and when they went to interview that girlfriend, it turned out she hadn't been seen for quite some time. The real kicker for police came when one of the task force members gasped upon hearing the name and seeing the photograph of the suspect in question. Inspector Corbus Coetzee was based at Boyson's police station, but he'd been called in to assist on the task force in mid-2006. As he looked at the photograph of the man his colleagues believed was responsible for five brutal murders, his gut clenched as he realised it was his gardener. Richmond Makwenkwe had been working for Kutsia every Friday since he'd been found not guilty of the housebreaking charges against him in late 2005. The man was an excellent worker, and had never missed a single day of work. I cannot even imagine what must have gone through Kutsia's mind at that moment. Sure, we all consciously know that serial murderers do not come with labels on their foreheads. We know they could be the guy next door, our brother or our colleague. But every Friday for months, as Kutsia returned from work, having spent the week desperately hunting a serial killer, Richmond greeted him with a smile and a wave as he tended the flower beds, And Kutsia had absolutely no idea that the man that he and his colleagues sought was right there in front of him all the time. Richmond Maquenque was arrested soon after and almost immediately confessed to his crimes. He revealed to investigators what they had already recently discovered. His first victim was indeed his girlfriend, Sheila Zoleka Kula. Richmond said that, angry about the woman having broken up with him and having gotten rid of his belongings, he'd begun to stalk Sheila and one day waited for her to leave her home and enter the park. There, he followed her until they were alone, upon which he attacked her, bound her hands, raped her and then stabbed her to death. He went to a friend's house nearby and asked for a spade, and then returned to the scene, dug a shallow grave, and buried the woman. Nothing in his confession about this murder explained the blow to the back of Sheila's head, though. Richmond then told investigators that the day after Sheila's murder, he'd started hunting someone else. The man he believed his ex girlfriend had not only given his belongings to, but also someone she'd been dating while he was in prison. The male victim, who Richmond could only identify as Vujani, had been killed around 5am, just a few days after Sheila. He admitted that he'd strangled the young man, and then using the spade he'd started to carry with him, the same one he'd likely used in the garden of one of the police officers who was tracking him, He dug a shallow grave and rolled Vujani's body into it. Then he covered the body. Richmond told police that after these first two murders, which according to him were justified, he had not stopped. One morning, he watched as 16-year-old Vanessa Sibille left her home for school, dressed in her red school blazer, grey school pants and white shirt. Her hair was neatly braided and secured away from her face with a white material headband. He watched as she entered the park area and made her way directly across the open expanse, the same way she had every morning before that. He followed from a distance, and soon he pounced. Richmond admitted to having tied Vanessa to a tree so that she could not escape, raping her. And then strangling her to death. He had not known Vanessa, except for having seen her on occasion walking through the park. Richmond would consistently refer to his fourth victim as the old woman, even though pathologists believed she was no older than her mid forties. He said that he didn't know the woman's name, but she worked as a domestic worker in the area and he'd seen her walking home on occasion in the afternoons. He told investigators that this was the only victim he'd raped with whom he'd used the condom. Like Vanessa, he'd tied the woman to a nearby tree, raped her, and then strangled her. He admitted to having tied her hands with a piece of plastic, which confirmed to investigators that he was the killer, as that information had not been released to the public. Richmond said he had attacked his final victim at night when she was walking through the park to get home. As with his other victims, he tied the woman to a tree and raped her before strangling her to death. He admitted that while he was strangling her, several other people had passed nearby and although they hadn't seen him, he was spooked and this was why she hadn't been bound or buried like the others. Richmond went on to carry out an official pointing out with detectives not related to the case. Captain Mike Van Art noted how although the locations were difficult to pinpoint, the man was able to take them to each and every spot, and the GPS coordinates of the pointings out matched up perfectly with those that had been recorded when the scenes had originally been found. Richmond further admitted that he'd frequently returned to the scenes of his crimes. He had not interfered with the bodies after their burial and before they were discovered, but he said he'd used the scenes as a type of church. He would go there on Sundays and pray. When he was there, he said, he felt an intense sense of peace. But when he left and was among living people again, he felt dangerous and unsettled. Despite providing a full confession, Richmond Makwenkwe decided to plead not guilty when he was charged with five murders and three rapes. He was denied bail as he awaits a trial. Then, two months after his arrest, another body was found in Moffat Park. The body, which was severely decomposed, could well have been another of Richmond's victims, although the man denied it. The other option was that this was the work of a copycat killer. Although, at the time, police said that they were hopeful they would be able to connect the victim to Richmond, this did not happen, and according to one article, it would turn out that the murder had been completely unrelated to the series. Then, in February 2007, just as Makwenkwe was getting ready to stand trial... Moffat Park revealed a seventh body. The condition of this body, though told investigators that there was very little chance it had been the work of the serial killer, and the female victim's murderer was eventually identified as her boyfriend, who'd seen coverage of the murder series and thought Moffat Park was a good place to dispose of his own victim when the trial of Richmond MQuenque eventually started in two thousand and eight. His defense team attempted to make something of the fact that the man's DNA could not be detected on any of the victims and the only thing tying him to the murders was his own confession the inconclusive DNA of course was as a result of the bodies being so badly decomposed and this in itself also became a topic of discussion during the trial the defence would try to use the wildly varying levels of decomposition between the different victims as a factor they claimed proved Richmond's innocence. In many of the cases, they attempted to claim that the victims had been killed while Richmond was actually awaiting trial and incarcerated for the housebreaking charge and therefore he could not be guilty of their murders. In her research paper, Dr. Shakira Holland addresses the difficulties in determining an approximate date of death solely from the rate of decomposition in an unidentified victim, where no known last movements are available. Holland says that this is an issue faced by forensic pathologists across the world, and she cites one particular study in which 25 deceased individuals, all having died at similar times, and having been buried in the same cemetery, and whose bodies had been treated exactly the same way before burial, were exhumed five years after their death. Despite it being a proven fact that all the deceased had died within days of each other, and been buried soon after, each of the bodies presented in markedly different stages of decomposition. Holland explains that in many South African serial murders, bodies left out in the open fault can be subjected to unintentional destruction of evidence. The longer the body is exposed to the elements and the different factors that play into the rates of decomposition, the less likely it is that the victim will ever be identified, and perhaps neither will their killer. In the Moffat Park series. The third victim, Vanessa Sibier, was in a far more advanced stage of decomposition, despite having spent a shorter period in the felt than some of the other victims. This was undoubtedly aided by the felt fire, which had occurred, but for many of the victims, weather patterns, insect activity, and the position in which their bodies had been left, also played a major role in their rates of decomposition. Thankfully, there was absolutely no scientific basis for the defence to use the rates of decomposition as unequivocal proof that Richmond had not committed the crimes. And in 2008, he was found guilty of all charges against him. He was handed down four life sentences, plus an additional 20 years for the rapes and robbery of some of his victims. Richmond Makwenkwee, would only serve three years of his sentence, though, because in 2011, after a short illness, he passed away while incarcerated. The Moffat Park series quite closely resembles some of the other series we've seen in South Africa. Many of our serial murderers attempt to explain away their crimes by claiming the revenge motive. Moses Torley did the same. He claimed to have started killing women to avenge a false rape accusation for which he was incarcerated. Richmond McQueenque would at one point tell police that, really, he'd only wanted to kill his ex-girlfriend and her new boyfriend, and the other three victims had to be killed because they frequented the park and he was worried they'd seen him commit his crimes. Of course, That is a complete load of hogwash. And really, Richmond's escalation and progression into murder, even the age at which he started committing the murders, lines up perfectly with all the data collected internationally and locally about serial killers. Although he may have liked to think that he was on some honourable crusade sparked by the disloyal actions of a woman, really... He was just a textbook example of so many that had come before him and that no doubt will follow in his wake. In researching this case, as I mentioned, I used Dr. Shakira Holland's paper that I found online. The paper as an academic study contains pictures of the victims. I'm often struck by the strange things that stay with me when I research these cases. The pink toenail polish on the feet of a woman who's just been viciously murdered by her partner. The cup of coffee sitting half full on a kitchen counter where beside it on the floor lies the body of the man who was just drinking from that cup moments before he was shot to death in his own home. In this case the thing that struck me was 16 year old vanessa sabir's white headband i cannot for the life of me explain why but when i looked at photographs of her remains and saw that headband i felt immensely sad of course i felt sad for all the victims but somehow in that moment most especially for Vanessa. I think it's because it's such an ordinary sign of the normal, happy teenager she was. I can almost picture her on the morning of her death, standing in front of the mirror, admiring her beautiful long braids, pressing them back to conform to school standards, and then securing them in place with that white headband. She'd fully intended to come home that afternoon and take that headband off, probably toss it onto her bedside table or dresser along with the other detritus of teenagehood. But she wouldn't. She would never touch that headband again. Instead, it would be captured in an autopsy photograph, still on her skull. Her long, beautiful braids, one of the only marks of her identity to have survived the ravages of nature, the victim of the rage of something much more unnatural. I think, especially when I cover serial murder cases, I now specifically and perhaps subconsciously look for that one thing. I look for the thing that's going to remind me And hopefully, you, that these are human beings. Because it would be easy to forget that among the legal jargon, the medical terms, and the descriptions of the offender's actions. It would be easy to let their humanity slip away unnoticed if it weren't for the pink nail polish, the half drunk coffee, if it weren't. For the white headband. Those things remind us we were here. We lived. And yes, we died at this man's hands. But more importantly, we lived. Sheila Kula, Vanessa Sibier, Buyani, and the two unidentified female victims. Rest gently. Thank you for listening to Episode 92, The Serial Crimes of Richmond Makwenkwe. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.